Hello, Roy here. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to The Roy Green Show ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. Grey's Anatomy, the most iconic binge-worthy drama, is back, along with answers to the biggest cliffhangers. Will Teddy survive? Will Joe and Link finally find happiness together? Meredith returns along with fan faves like Arizona. You can now stream every episode of Grey's ever on Hulu and new episodes next day. Watch new episodes of Grey's Anatomy Thursdays at 9, 8 central on ABC and stream on Hulu. This is the Roy Green Show podcast. We're going to begin with the uh, the German election takes place this weekend. And it appears that the biggest issue for the German electorate is the one that has to do with the immigration and uh, and migrants, um, refugee uh, appeals and, and migrants entering Germany. The Chancellor, Angela Merkel, of course, invited all refugees to make their way and refugee claimants to make their way to Germany. And it has a, had an impact uh, on, the, on, the, on the country. And there's some reports uh, that are circulating in Canadian media which seem to suggest everything is just fine. But according to my guest, who is in Germany now and is observing the election, the reports in Canada are not necessarily what he's seeing. Jeremy Hexham is a Ph.D. student at the University of Calgary. His specialty is political communication, and he's working as a volunteer for a CDU candidate in Berlin, in Berlin, and that's the um, Christian Democratic Union Party. Jeremy, thank you for the time. The CDU is Angela Merkel's party, correct? Yes, the Christian Democrats, that's Angela Merkel's party. Christian Democrats. Yes, and it's one of 34 political parties in Germany, although only seven of them are actually expected to get in. And just to explain a little bit about the Christian Democrats, they are all over Germany except in Bavaria, where they're called the Christian Social Union. And so they're sister parties, they're different parties, but they sort of work together, and it's really confusing. So you've got 34 political parties. Are they all running candidates somewhere in Germany? Well, this is the interesting thing about the German system. No, they're not. Um, you have the two ballots. So you have your first ballot where you get to directly rep- uh, elect your representative, like we do in Canada, and then your second ballot goes to your political party. Now, under the German system, you have to either get three direct elected members or 5% of the vote. So if you were a political party that was able to get three members elected and only got 2% or 3% of the vote, you would get that 3%. Uh, if you don't get 5% and don't get anyone in, you don't get in. Uh, this is what happened in 2013 when the Free Democratic Party was only able to get 4.8% of the vote, and so they are not currently in the Bundestag, the federal uh, parliament. Wow. Um, and then you look at the party like the Green Party, which got 8.4% of the vote, uh, so they were able to get 62 seats, but they also elected one member, so they have 63 seats in the Bundestag. Now, the other interesting thing about the German election system is that it's supposed to be equal. 299 direct votes, uh, direct members, and 299 uh, members from party ballots. Unfortunately, you have something called overhanging seats, which makes it out that they try to give everyone equal number of seats. So instead of having 598 seats, there are currently 630 seats in the Bundestag because of the extra 32 overhang seats. I'm getting a headache. Yes. 
it takes I mean, this, several this, years to figure this out. This makes it, this makes first past the post seem entirely appropriate and completely reasonable by comparison. Well, I've got to tell you, I've I've always loved the German political system. I think it's a great way of doing it. And then I learned about the overhang seats, which makes the elected members have less power and. Several people in Germany uh, of all political parties have actually told me that a lot of these political part, these member, elected members are out of touch with reality because they're on list systems and they have no idea what's actually going on. So, uh, yeah. In my <laughs> Imagine that, system, a politician with no idea what's going on. Yeah, and this is, this, and, and it's, I'm hearing it from a lot of people. And like yeah. I said, I always thought this was a fantastic system. Yeah. I, st- I still have very uh, positive feelings for the German political system, but it does uh, get a little confusing. All right, so tell us, please, what is likely to happen. Is Angela Merkel going to be back as the Chancellor of Germany? And if you're the Chancellor of Germany, is that the equivalency to being Prime Minister of Canada or President of the United States? It's equivalent to being the Prime Minister, and Angela Merkel is expected to get approximately 34 to 40 percent of the vote. Uh, and, she'll ha- and in German politics, there are all, with one exception, there have always been coalition governments. The one exception was in 1957. Uh-huh. So Angela Merkel will have to form a coalition. Why is with that? Another par- uh, just the way the system's set up with the double votes, they don't let one party take over because of certain issues that happened in the 1930s. Right. They wanted to make sure it was fair and representative. Okay. And, you know, we may not know who the government actually is for a couple of days, a couple of weeks, or even a couple of months, because it takes that long to negotiate the different parties. Okay, so, um, so you get the voting, the voting is over, but now the parties have to negotiate with one another about what sort of coalitions they're going to form, and hopefully they'll be able to do, form a coalition that will give them the, the government of the country, will provide them with the, with, with, with the option to govern. Is, yeah. uh, is, is Merkel, now look, the issue of, of migrants and the issue of immigration and the issue of refugees, is, when I look at stories that run in this country or in the United States, but particularly here, it seems to me, at least I'm reading, that everything is just perfect. Everything is just working out perfectly well in Germany. Although I had a, a guest, a university professor from the United States on a few weeks ago, and she's worked with refugee organizations for decades, and she painted an entirely different picture. She painted a, a picture of violence and a picture of fear, criminal activity, and she painted a picture of governments and police organizations sweeping everything under the rug. Who's telling the truth? Well, I mean, I've got to tell you, I read, I've been reading what the, or I've been listening to what the other national network uh, in Canada says, the BBC and the Globe and Mail, and I just think they're totally out of whack. If if things were so wonderful, you wouldn't have the AFD doing so well. And the AFD is the alternative for Deutschland. They are a far-right party um, that the current uh, foreign minister, Sigmil Gabriel, who's a member of the Social Democratic Party, has basically said, even if you elect, elect them, you'll be electing the Nazis back in. There's a real fear about this party, although they're not actually uh, as right-wing as they come across. But, I mean, yes, this is the problem. This is the issue. The only issue in this election has been immigration and how we deal with it. Mm-hmm. Uh, and people are upset. And uh, a friend of mine who I've been working with said, that, you know, the thing about Germans is they like to smoke, they like to drink too much, and they like to drive too fast, and they like to defy the political establishment. And there's a real fear about this with the uh, migrants. I mean, it's gone to the point where the Linka, which is the left party, the post-communist, 
have actually this week come out and said, yes, we're, we're all in favor of open borders, but, you know, maybe we should uh, cut down the amount of people who are coming in. Mm. Uh, this last week I was in... Uh, how many, I'm sorry to interrupt, but how many people are, how many migrants and how many refugee claimants are still coming into Germany on a regular basis? Because my understanding was, and correct me if I don't understand this properly, but the Germans were trying to stop the migration in Austria and using Austria as a buffer. Enough about that. I know there's a million refugees in right now, and they're constantly coming. Right. Uh, but I don't know the exact situation. But that is that is the really issue, does. right? Yeah, I don't okay. think anyone really does because you hear one thing and then you hear something completely different. Yeah. And so there's no real evidence. I mean, you're not hearing exactly what's going on. Okay. Are people telling the truth about how they feel about the refugee issue and the the migrant issue, or is it being massaged? Because what I heard the vice chancellor of Germany say a few weeks ago is that any German who opposes the migrants or the refugee claimants in Germany should be put in prison. Yes, and and Angela Merkel and the CDU have basically said if you if you don't agree with us and you're right right of us, then you're a Nazi. And so wow. I, I I don't know. I mean, <laughs> the polls say that the AFD is going to get uh, between eight and twelve percent. Mm-hmm. And you know, I'm I'm looking at this similarly to what happened with the U.S. presidential election. You know, the minute Mitt Romney started coming out saying nasty things about Trump and had, with this thing, I said, yep, yeah, Trump's going to win. Yeah. And I'd gone to a shopping center and said to somebody I have known for years, I thought Trump was going to win, and they almost took off my head. And I think people are too scared to admit how they feel if they're going to vote for uh, the AFD. Okay. Jeremy, so let me... We could, see, we could see the AFD do... You're listening to The Roy Green Show, weekends from 2 to 5 on AM 900 CHML. Jeremy Hexum is my guest. He's joining us from Berlin, where he's working as a volunteer in the German election for the, uh, what's the party, the CDU party? CDU, the yeah. Christian Democratic Union. Yeah, so, and the election is tomorrow. The election is tomorrow. Uh, polls are open from 8 to 6, and at 6 o'clock German time, the polls close, and instantly we have results uh, from the uh, exit polls. And then throughout the evening, the actual numbers will come in. And I really do have to apologize if the phone line is bad. One of the issues in this campaign uh, that they've tried to bring up, with the FTP has tried to bring up, is Internet infrastructure, because Germany actually has the lowest adoption of fiber optics. They still use uh, um, copper for everything, and the Internet is terrible. The roads, are the, you know, everyone has heard how great the Autobahn is. Right. The Autobahn's in terrible shape because it's been neglected. So, unfortunately, I really apologize if the phone line's bad. No, no, it's not, it's not your fault. It's infrastructure. We don't have the greatest roads or, uh, or phone, phone infrastructure in this country. Now, the political parties, Jeremy, they're all focused on the issue of immigration, migration, refugees. Are they doing that because that's what they want to talk about, or are they doing that because they're being led in that direction by the German people? Well, this is the, that's the main political parties. You've also got right. uh, a bunch of other little parties. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm talking about the ones that have a chance yeah. of doing something. The, uh, they're, they're doing it because of the alternative for Germany. AFT has just been pushing this issue nonstop for the last five years. Mm-hmm. And I don't know if I said before the break, but the Linka, the left party, actually has had to come around and sort of say, okay, maybe we need to start putting some numbers on these people. And they've sort of started having to say that because there has been this issue. And, and it's, it's just, it's, you, it's, it's interesting just going around Germany. One of my favorite places is Alexanderplatz. 
And, you know, I've always felt extremely safe there. It's a, they've got a great technology store that I love going to. They've got great shopping. And Alexanderplatz has now become crime center for Berlin. And last weekend or two weekends ago, there was um, two stabbings over two nights that sent eight people to hospital. And it's these refugees fighting among themselves and, and injuring other people and getting people involved. Even going on the U-Bahn and the S-Bahn, the underground and above ground, you know, they're always hanging out at the transit stations. And it's just not as safe as it once was. And so this has become the issue, and people are wanting to talk about it. And uh, in Bavaria, they've said that sexual report, uh, assault reports have gone up by 49%. And again, it is sort of being swept under the rug that people don't really want to talk about these issues or the main political parties aren't really wanting to say what's really going on. And when you observe things, um, it's completely different from what the media is saying. I mean, the Globe and Mail reported last week that uh, 325,000 refugee children had been integrated into the school system. And a week earlier, I had actually spoken to uh, some teachers who said, no, that's not at all. They're not integrating. There's major problems. The schools are not getting the money. These children don't speak German. They're not interested in speaking German. And it's causing all sorts of problems. Wow. So, so if you have a, the youngest generation with the immediate opportunity to integrate, because kids are usually best at that sort of thing, yeah. and if that's not happening, that's the precursor for some really significant challenges going forward, I would think. Yes, it is. So is this uh, this, this party, this... Uh, this our AFD AFD. party. Are they, would they be like the German equivalent of Marine Le Pen's Front National? Well, you know, people have tried to say that. People have tried to uh, attribute them to the UKIP. And they're not quite that right wing. I mean, they've got some very great moderates, and they've got some radical wing nuts in there as well, like all political parties do. Right. Uh, but they've, because the right of the CDU, they've been labeled this way. In fact, the current lead candidate, so, so the main political parties, the SPD and the CDU, have chancellor candidates. And the other political parties have lead candidates, and most of them have two, a male and a female. And the uh, lead candidate for the AFD is actually a lesbian who's living with a Malaysian-born woman, and they have two adopted children, and she speaks fluent English and fluent Mandarin. And so this party that's supposed to be this right-wing pro-family party has this as their leader. Okay. So it's, they're getting this different viewpoint. You're listening to The Roy Green Show, weekends from 2 to 5 on AM 900 CHML. Is there the possibility of a Donald Trump-like victory for the, um, many saying it's a, it's a very right-wing party, Jeremy saying not so much? But, Jeremy, is there the opportunity, is there the, the chance, and remember the New York Times in the morning of November the 8th of last year said, I think there was a 92% chance that, that Hillary Clinton was going to win the election. We know what happened. Is there, uh, uh, is there any kind of chance that Germans may wake up uh, on, uh, on Monday morning and find themselves with an entirely new governmental structure, new parties running things yes and no yes because there could be a new coalition between the christian democratic union the afd and the green party and that's what people are predicting as smaller coalition parties and it should note that the fdp and the green party can't stand each other but there is no way that the alternative for germany will actually get enough seats to form government so yes there will probably be a new government 
because right now it's a, co- a grand coalition between the CDU and the Social Democrats, but nothing, uh, nothing radical, I don't think. Okay. Now, what impact will the German election have on the continent, on the rest of, of Europe? Well, there's a great quote I love. I think Lenin said it and said, he who controls Berlin controls Germany, and he who controls Germany controls Europe. And I think we've seen that uh, in the last number of years with Germany having one of the strongest economies in Europe. Um, and Angela Merkel as leader has shown stability. You've got to give her credit for that. Um, so I, I don't think, I mean, with Angela Merkel still in power, uh, I don't think we have to worry too much. It just depends, again, how the AFD does and how the other political parties do, whether Angela Merkel sticks around for the entire term or if something happens. I mean, I was told that last year there was almost a coup in the CDU with the immigration issue, and they were trying to be a booter at one point. And so if the AFD does much better than everyone expects, uh, Angela Merkel could be in a lot of trouble and might not survive the entire four-year term. Uh, if they do worse than everyone expects, uh, she could survive, and the FTP uh, could put some, re- some restrictions on how uh, the government works. So it's, it's, it's very much in the air, but it's also very stable in a lot of ways. We're not expecting a major upset like Donald Trump would have. Um, if it weren't for the immigration issue, and if it weren't for the refugee question, if it weren't for the migrant issues, and is, it, is the number about a million people who've entered Germany since 2015? Well, that's what they claim, although uh, when I, I actually met with some people from the AFD last, year, last week, and they said, well, that's a million that's come in as refugees, but they've all now brought in their families. And, oh, yeah, one of the issues that's happened is a bunch of these refugees have gone back to Syria for vacations, and they're coming back into Germany. So a lot of people are saying it could be a lot more than a million, but nobody's giving a specific number. So if it weren't for this issue, if it weren't so dominating as far as talk and conversation and, uh, and uh, interest is concerned in Germany, would the AFD even be a credible thought for, for the election tomorrow, or, or would they just be a, an afterthought? They'd be an afterthought. They wouldn't even be around. They were actually formed uh, a couple months before the last election in 2013, uh, just because of the Greek bailout. Mm-hmm. And that's been the, that was the rallying call, and that's what brought them together. If it wasn't for this issue, I don't think they'd be, they'd be any contention at all. It would have just fizzled out, and they would have been like the other 32 or 34 smaller parties that just don't make an impact. Okay, so now, now, the interesting thing, too, yeah. also about this election is that in Germany, they use posters all over the place. And when I was here in 2013, everybody, uh, Angela Merkel's face was everywhere. She was very popular. Now she's not as popular as uh, people, uh, she's not as popular as she was, but there's nobody better. I mean, the SPD chose a guy called Martin Schultz to be their lead candidate, and he's just built out. They're barely able to get over 20% of the vote, and a lot of people are saying, you know, he's the Hillary Clinton of this election, and the SPD should have gone with a guy called Sigmund Gabriel uh, as their lead candidate, uh, who would have actually been their Bernie Sanders. Yeah. So it's... Um it, it's it's the same scenario that that we see uh, uh, globally. Look, the, the 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 term that's used in Canada, the Prime Minister repeats it time and again, is diversity is our strength. Would you would that be a term that would be uh, used with the same kind of commitment and enthusiasm by politicians in Germany in this election campaign? 
In a lot of ways, yes, because they do believe in diversity and they do want them. I mean, like says Nisnak, I met a waitress who was uh, 18 years old when the Berlin Wall fell, and she says, yes, we want open borders. Yes, we're happy to have these migrants come in, but the problem is they're getting five of them in a day looking for work, and they don't speak German, and a lot of them don't want to adapt. I mean, if they want to adapt and help learn German and fit into the economy, that's great. But the ones who are just there for the sake of getting money from the German government and don't want to do anything is what's going on people's nerves. And people are not necessarily happy with what's going on here. There was a poll that says that Germans want some political change, but there's just no change to offer. So there is a frustration. And the other interesting thing is Germany has usually had one of the highest voter turnouts in Europe. And I, just from what I've seen on the streets, a lot of people aren't interested. And I think there's going to be a very low voter turnout tomorrow. Not as, not as low as what we get in Canada, but lower for German standards, which oh. is still very high for European standards. So what's going on with the Pegida movement in Germany? That's the, uh, the pro-Russian, anti-immigrant, uh, pro-Vladimir Putin uh, movement. How's, uh, what are they up to? I haven't heard a thing about them. In fact, uh, I mean, I haven't, I, until you mentioned it, I hadn't even remembered they were a party. I don't even know if they were actually registered in this uh, Yeah, I don't think they're a political party. party, but they were getting like 60, 70, 80,000 people out to their rallies not long ago. Yes, and that's where the AFD has sort of got the right-wing twinge from, because a lot of people have gone to the AFD from that perspective, because okay. parties haven't fizzled out. But then, I've got to tell you, uh, with the whole Russian thing, there's a party uh, in Germany called Die Party. And they're a satirical uh, party. They're the largest of the small parties. They were founded in 2004 by the uh, editors of a satirical magazine called The Titanic. And their mission was to bring back the Berlin Wall. Their mission now, or their statement this year, is to bring back the Berlin Wall, make the East Germans pay for it, and blame everything on Russia. <laughs> well, <laughs> you and I will speak tomorrow at about this time. Yes about how things will have turned out in the in the election. We'll know as far as uh, exit polls are concerned, right? We'll start, start yes. to see numbers from the exit polls. And we'll have some basic early results, too, by this time tomorrow. All right, Jeremy, thank you so much for the time. Well, thank you very much for having me. Talk to you tomorrow. Uh, Jeremy Hexum joining us from Berlin. You're listening to The Roy Green Show, weekends from 2 to 5 on AM 900 CHML. So I was uh, reading a story online the other day. And it was uh, from CNN, and it says, Too few new antibiotics are under development to combat the threat of multidrug-resistant infections, according to a new World Health Organization report published on Tuesday. Adding to the concern, it's likely that the speed of increasing resistance will outpace the slow drug development process. As of May, a total of 51 antibiotics and 11 biologicals, medical products often made from natural sources, are being developed, the new report said, quote, the idea is that biologicals could replace use of antibiotics, which could help in overcoming the resistance problem. That's from Peter Beyer. He's the author of the report and a senior advisor to the World Health Organization's Department of Essential Medicines and Health Products. He wrote that in an email. So to translate all of this for us, uh, we're joined by Jason Tetro, the Canadian microbiologist, the germ guy. His books are The Germ Code and The Germ Files. Uh, Jeremy, uh, I, I'm sorry, uh, Jason, I have no idea what I just said, so please translate. 
All right. Um, it's actually very simple. Um, have you ever had a bacterial infection? I have. Throat or maybe some gastrointestinal or maybe there was, uh, you know, a, a wound that got infected? Yes, sir. Well, normally what we do is we go to the doctor um, and that person prescribes us uh, some antibiotics. We go home, we take those antibiotics and we get better, right? Right. Uh, yeah, we don't have that luxury uh, in many cases anymore. And that's because microbes have become, or these bacteria have become resistant to the antibiotics that we rely on. Now, this has been going on for probably 70 years. And the usual way to combat this was to develop new and what we call stronger antibiotics. Unfortunately, what we've learned is that those microbes are going to become resistant to them as well. So two things happened. One, uh, we started losing out on the current supply of antibiotics that we have. And two, pharmaceutical companies who, you know, understandably, they're interested in bottom line, realize that you're spending t up to 10 years, up to, you know, something like one to two billion dollars to make a drug that potentially may only have a shelf life of 18 months before you start to see resistance. It, it just 18 months, wow. Yeah, um, I, I, I mean, some people have actually said that it could take as little as six months for some antibiotics uh, after being used um, to, to see some kind of resistance in the bacteria. So this is a reality that we face, and unfortunately what we've become, I guess had no point, no choice but to accept, is that resistance is faster than development. And that's part of what you saw in that, uh, in that email from the author. Mm -hmm. The second part is that we also know that there are biologicals. And what they mean by this are viruses of bacteria, which we call bacteriophages, um, antimicrobial peptides, which essentially are physical ways, they're like knives, if you will, at the microbial level, to just break apart microbes. These things, you can't really develop resistance all that quickly, or we can develop newer versions faster than we can with antibiotics. So the idea that this report um, sort of conveys is the current drugs that we have in the pipeline um, are probably not going to be very effective in the long term. The biologicals that we're using probably are going to be more effective, but they're not getting the attention they deserve. And in the meantime, we're continuing to see a massive spread of a number of different types of microbes that are you know, potentially going to be killing us. Um, you probably saw that tuberculosis was a big one yes. in this report. Yes. Um, but something as simple as what we know as uh, Klebsiella, it's just a Latin name, and if you look under a microscope, it's a big, long uh, microbe. But I don't know if you remember, a couple months ago, there was a woman in Nevada. She ended up getting that particular bacterium, and she died because there were no antibiotics available to treat it. Uh, so we're in a situation now... If I, if I understand this correctly, mm -hmm. though there's a significantly greater health threat from microbes than there was a number of years ago. And does this mean that we could see the reemergence of illnesses, of life-threatening illnesses, that would have been considered uh, impossible 50 years ago, that would be considered extinct? Yeah, uh, it's already happening. And, and that's sort of that, the, the example of the woman in Nevada yeah. is only one example of what we're seeing where people are becoming infected with uh, certain types of bacteria and you just simply cannot treat them. How do you counter this? Or can you? Uh, 
you, you know, <laughs> if you go back to the days before antibiotics, um, some people call it the dark ages. Yeah. Unfortunately, that's seemingly where we're going to be going. Um, if it's, you know, a limb or something along those lines, we might be able to do treatment with maybe natural biologicals or something, but if they're not available, uh, you know, amputation was not all that uh, uncommon back in the day. Um, you remember, you've probably heard of iron lungs, right? Yes, indeed. Yes, well, this is the type of thing where we may have no choice but to start thinking about this again unless we really put money and, and, and resources and, to be honest with you, the public's backing uh, into the research that's being done to look at these alternatives, these biologicals, which we know will have the longer shelf life. So you have the an aging population a much larger global population, a a reduction in the antibiotics that are available, and then a a reduction in the efficacy of these antibiotics, and you've got the perfect storm. Uh, Absolutely. And um, one of the things that uh, I've been trying to sort of point out when I go out on tour and talk, uh, especially when I'm talking about my books, is that that aging population is not the only concern we have. We're actually seeing a reduction in the immune, the, the, the immune status of individuals because of pharmaceuticals, because of environmental problems. So we're all sort of losing that strong immune system that we used to have. In, in layman's terminology, what did you just tell me when you say that we're seeing uh, a reduction in the immunity? Uh, if I, so, well, whatever you just said. Well, in layman's terminology, what does it mean? Well, it just means that normally you'd be able to fight off an infection. Yeah. But be- if your immunity is compromised, yeah. then that means that you're not going to be able to fight off that infection. Strep throat? Uh, strep throat is a perfect example. I mean, you've probably heard that in some cases people are getting strep throat, and that's turning into uh, flesh-eating disease. Yes. Well, that would not normally happen if you had a strong enough immunity. Mm-hmm. But if you happen to have a weakened immunity because of a number of different problem, problems, then your likelihood of getting that, um, that, that secondary flesh-eating disease becomes higher. Is there some way we can somewhat protect ourselves, something that we can do proactively for ourselves? Well, this is something that is currently under a lot of research, and we now know that diet is really going to help. Um, so uh, I promote the Mediterranean diet because that is one of the most effective. Um, you want to make sure that you're getting you know, your vitamin D, which is very good for helping to balance out your immune system. Fermented foods, which is something that I'm asking the government to put on the food guide, um, actually helps to balance out your immune system so that you don't have the compromised or the overaction that we see sometimes cease, what we call the cytokine storm. So the thing is, is we can do this naturally, but, you know, Canadians have to be aware of, first off, you know, what can we do, and then what the benefit of that is, 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 you know, Mm -hmm. can be for us. And if we don't do that, and we just focus on, you know, antibiotics and biologicals, we're going to lose this battle. Yeah, we we, if, we, if, if we assume that everything's okay and the doc's always going to be able to give us uh, a little vial of pills and say to us, now remember to take them all, Yep, it's not that way anymore. Absolutely. And you should take them all when you are given them. Yeah, the absolutely. Way, just, you know, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Don't, don't yeah. listen to that one thing that said you should stop early. Just no, no, that. That, no. that just makes things worse. But you're totally correct. Yeah. We, we each have to take a little bit more responsibility for right. our own health. Jason, thank you so much. Always good talking to you. I always learn a lot. Thank you. Oh, it was a pleasure, Roy. Have a great day. You too. Jason Tetro, Canadian microbiologist, the germ guy. His books are The Germ Code and The Germ Files. You're listening to The Roy Green Show, weekends from 2 to 5 on AM 900 CHML. 2015, just prior to the federal election, there was, of course, a study 
which showed that the middle class is doing just fine. Thank you very much. And to help out the middle class, of course, one of the first things the federal government did, this one, was to cut in half the TFSA contributions that Canadians were allowed to make from $10,000 to $5,000 a year. That was for tax fairness. And now there's a whole raft of things, well, sort of, that are in play, introduced in July by the federal finance minister, which also will lead to tax fairness. Except it's entirely unfair to the very people they're supposedly helping, and that's the middle class. Doctors fall into the realm of the middle class. Small business operators fall into the realm of middle class. But somehow earning a $150,000 a year is the wealth threshold that pushes you over the middle class, I suppose, and will expose you to greater taxation. All in the interest of fairness, like cutting in half the TFSA contributions. There was also a, uh, a report this week, or a story this week, from the Canadian Business Council that a multi-billion dollar business in Canada is cutting its ties, going, going, gone. Why? Because of the new tax initiatives by Mr. Morneau and Mr. Trudeau. Gone. And one of the issues there was succession. Because the business owner, according to the, the story I read, the business owner had concerns about how much it was going to cost to pass on the business to his kids, his family. And that's a real problem for the farmers of this country as well. And I was uh, listening to Megs Reynolds. We're going to talk to her in just a moment. I was listening to her um, speaking about what it was going to cost to pass on the family farm to the kids. It might have been half a million dollars before in taxes. Now it's going to be a million and a half. That was the number she used. And Megs Reynolds has been just getting a tremendous amount of attention um, in this country and beyond. Have a listen to Megs. This is about 60 seconds of the, uh, of the blog posting. This is the audio of the blog posting that she sent to the Prime Minister of Canada. I want to talk about how the proposed tax changes could affect succession planning and um, passing on the family land, keeping it in the family. Uh, I might have come from the city, but my farm girls are fifth generation, and they are lucky to be growing up on a family farm that's 107 years old in Saskatchewan, Canada. I don't think it's fair that the government wants to make it easier to sell that land outside the family rather than to keep it in the family. I've heard numbers along the lines of $500,000 in tax to sell to a stranger, but to sell that exact same parcel of land to a family member, you'd be looking at $1.5 million. That's, that blows my mind. That's outrageous. That's a government basically saying that they want to shut down family farms, that they don't want that next generation coming in and farming. Um, I, why? 98% of family farms, or sorry, 98% of farms in Canada are family owned and operated. That's huge. That's amazing. That's a Canadian farming legacy. And what the Liberal government wants to shut that down, that's something we need to fight. Megs Reynolds, good to have you on the program. Thank you for having me. What's the reaction been to the uh, to that to that blog? 
Um, there's been a lot of farmers that have thanked me mm-hmm. for voicing what uh, they are feeling right now. There's a lot of shock and awe, I think, across the country as to who this is supposed to be helping. It's not easy to run a family farm anyway, is it? In the no, best of not times. At not at all. So, so it's, the, it's the cost of moving along the family farm to in succession to the next generation. There are other factors in this supposed tax fairness that's, that are going to hit pretty hard too, aren't there? Yeah, for us right now, what would actually affect us the most is in regards to income splitting. Um, one way that we take income out of the farm is by dividends, and often my husband is the only one that we can afford to pay. Um, the government is going to assess if a family member deserves their wage, and how they're uh, talking about doing that is by applying the reasonability test to it. So I'm kind of curious, who decides what is a reasonable wage for me if I'm in the tractor seating at 3 in the morning? Um, is that my husband? Is that going to be the CRA? Are they going to form a committee that's going to deal with an increased administration and compliance burden that this, uh, the proposed changes will um, place on everything? Uh, they're also saying that a family member who only works for the family business seasonally um, for farming, that could be seeding and harvest, the two busiest times a year for farmers, um, that under the reasonability test, because they're not working 365 days um, a cycle, that they wouldn't actually be deserving of a wage. And to me, that's just straight up insulting. And it shows a complete lack of understanding on how, on their part, on how uh, agriculture works. Senator Denise Batters from Saskatchewan, conservative senator. Clearly, Senator, you don't agree with what the government is putting forward, but uh, what, uh, what Megs Reynolds is telling us is that it's going to harm the small business. We've been hearing this from small business operators across Canada anyway, but it's going to harm people who are at the very the tip of the, of the spear, as it were, the breadbasket of this country, providing for the rest of us. Why, what, what, what in, in heaven's name is the prime minister trying to accomplish? I'm not going to ask you to interpret for him, but, but please try to explain what you see them doing. Well, the Trudeau government is introducing these unfair tax changes because they're broke. They have a massive spending problem. When I asked my question about this very issue and how it, the devastating impact on agriculture in the Senate question period this week, right before I asked my question, the Senate government leader was actually bragging about their $18 billion deficit. So that's the sort of mentality they have. The very people that the Trudeau government is constantly claiming to help, the middle class and those working hard to join that, we've all heard that countless times, Mm -hmm. those are the people that are going to be hurt most severely by this scheme. And like Meg said, um, it just shows a fundamental misunderstanding of Canada's agricultural sector. Everybody on that family form has to be involved in a major way for that farm to have any level of success. And also equally um, terrible in this whole situation is the fact that the Trudeau government deliberately chose a consultation period that was quite brief, especially considering the complex nature of all this, and they Mm -hmm. imposed it right during harvest, um, right during the farmer's busiest time of the year. Mags, I hear you uh, agreeing with with, with the senator. Yes, I do. Um, That is one thing that I don't, uh, no matter how this plays out, I'm not going to forgive the government for the timing on the proposition of this bill Um, and for using a 75-day consultation period. um, When the tax structure was changed originally in 1972 by Pierre Elliott Trudeau, they used a five-year consultation period Mm -hmm. to fully grasp the effects that those changes would have on 
the small business that was using uh, that tax bracket. And I understand information is easier to come by now than, than it was uh, in 1972. But I think we could, um, it would be nice to see a longer consultation period to show that they are actually interested in um, finding out how this could affect uh, small business and middle class across Canada. If they go through with what they've put forward, if it actually happens, what does that do to your farm, Megs? What does it do the, to the to the farms around you? What's the prognosis for those farms as far as fiscal health is concerned? Well, it's like we've talked about, it's going to make it very, very hard for succession. And succession already is extremely murky waters. You're dealing with a family structure. Sometimes uh, it goes through court before it can have succession. And the way that they've um, proposed uh, this bill, they would actually... Um, be going after um, farm sales or business sales that had that had already happened because they want to retrograde uh, these changes. So that that could have a huge effect on someone who thinks, okay, I'm in the safe. You know, we went through succession, the family farm. Uh, I purchased it ten years ago. It doesn't matter because they're going to go after that tax. You know, in 2015, there was that report I mentioned, which suggested that the middle class is not having any troubles or wasn't having any troubles, really, that they were getting along just fine. But more and more of these initiatives by this federal government is going to make it necessary to provide assistance to the middle class. If they just left well enough alone, things would have been reasonably okay. Senator, is there any, is there any part of this, of, this, of this argument that Mr. Morneau and Mr. Trudeau are putting forward that makes any sense at all? Is there anything that's def- that they can defend? That's, a very, that's maybe the most difficult question you've ever asked me, <laughs> to make sense of anything that they're doing. To me, um, Prime Minister Justin Trudeau and Finance Minister Bill Morneau seem more concerned about their own personal family fortunes than the people of Canada who are going to be hurt so severely by this. I mean, maybe we shouldn't be surprised, given that in the last election, Justin Trudeau actually said this during an interview. He said he believes that, quote, small businesses are actually just ways for wealthier Canadians to save on their taxes. I mean, that was a shocking quote at the time, and maybe people didn't pay as much of attention to it as they should have, but in this agricultural setting, for me, the most shocking part is the succession issue, and that's what I asked about in my Senate question, um, because I think it's absolutely ridiculous that it would be easier and less costly to transfer your family farm to a stranger than to your own children, and numbers that we've seen from an accountant actually quoted in the article that Megs was quoted in, in the Globe and Mail, saying that to a a stranger, it would be taxed at 25%, their own children taxed at 45%. You're listening to The Roy Green Show, weekends from 2 to 5 on AM 900 CHML. The issue is tax fairness, or at least that's what uh, the federal government is calling calling it. Business, small businesses calling it anything but. Farmers who are part of the small business environment in this country are calling it anything but. And a billion-dollar company, perhaps a multi-billion-dollar company, is already committed to pulling out of this country because of the succession fees that will come along with this legislation. Now, from what I understand, the finance minister is talking about holding uh, meetings and, and, and finding out more about what uh, Canadians want. Uh, Senator Denise Batters, they clearly weren't ready for the national response to the supposed tax fairness plan, and now they have the tiger by the proverbial tail. How is this going to end, do you think? 
Well, we're the Conservatives are going to fight this every single step of the way. Um, we're also um, in the Senate. We're trying to launch um, national public hearings potentially and have our our finance committee of the Senate study this, launch public hearings, so that this government is forced to listen to from many different areas just how devastating the impact that this will be, not just on small business owners, not just on farmers, but also on the employees of all of those people. Mm -hmm. Because at the end of the day, when a business takes a financial hit that's that large, they have to find that money somewhere and often labor cuts costs are cut um, so and no new hires those sorts of things so right now I mean for those of us in Western Canada it's not really surprising that this is happening with yet another Trudeau in power I mean liberals elect very few MPs in rural areas they kicked the liberal senators out of their caucus um, maybe those people could be providing some much-needed wisdom on this topic but because right now they have no understanding of agriculture, no understanding of the energy sector. I couldn't actually believe when I saw the federal ag minister get up in question period this week and defend this. Um, it's just outrageous. Yeah, I know, Meg's from an email that you sent to me, that uh, the, the, the statement by the agriculture minister in, in Parliament got your attention in a big way. Yes, I actually uh, posted a video as my response to it. Um, I, was, <laughs> I was so upset after watching it. It really, really, really got to me. He uh, he didn't actually um, really respond to the questions. He put forth uh, rhetoric that was pre-approved by the Liberal government, and then he just went completely off topic to talk about what he had done as the Minister of Ag for um, farmers in Canada, which is all good and dandy, but I said, what would you like to tell the thousands of post-secondary students across Canada who are working on ag degrees with the hopes of one day taking over their uh, family farms mm. because all the stuff that you're doing or the research dollars you're spending are not going to mean anything to them if they don't have a career in which to implement them. One more question for you, Megs. Is there a, a possibility, I won't use the word likelihood, but if this passes the way that it's been proposed, is there a likelihood that a possibility that, uh, that you um, may have to sell the farm? Do you think it, that could be an issue with with, with many of your neighbors, could that be an issue across Western Canada? Maybe across Canada? It, it could definitely be uh, an issue across Canada. Um, the way that, you know, I've done a lot of research into how this would play out, and I know that um, the finance minister has come out and he's actually spoken to a farmer in Saskatchewan and he said that we really don't have to worry and that this isn't going to apply to us um, but what he's doing is he's coming from a background of privilege where purchasing a company is made with a pers personal cash that has already been taxed. Um, the average Canadian or the next generation taking over the family business, they don't have millions sitting in a bank account waiting to make that purchase. Mm -hmm. So instead, the common plan is to purchase the family business using a combination of accumulated and future profits in the corporation um, and pay for the acquisition of the business with dividends. And on those dividends, you would be taxed at a rate of 40% plus that uh, 24%, or sorry, versus the 24% that an outsider would. So what they've done is they're, they've cr they're creating a climate in which a business is encouraged to sell outside uh, than to family members because of the cost. I was talking to a small business person the other day, and this person said to me, I feel like I'm being talked to by somebody, not you, and not you, Senator, but by the government. I feel like I'm being talked to talk to by someone who's having a, a manicure done while, while I've got dirt under my nails. So, 
Absolutely. I thought that was a, yeah. not, that was an interesting metaphor. I have to I have to go. Thank you both for for joining us. And Megs, we're going to stay in touch with you, and uh, and and watch you watch you watch you blog, and we'll have you back on the show. Thank you for today. Thank you very much for your time. And Senator, we'll be talking to you a little later on the program about something else that you were involved in at the Senate level. Absolutely. All and right. just before she goes, I wanted to just briefly thank Megs myself because she's been a great okay. personalization of who these Trudeau unfair tax changes affect, and that's okay. been really effective. All right, got to go. Well, thank you so both so very much. Meg's Reynolds and Senator Denise Batters on The Roy Green Show. You're listening to The Roy Green Show, weekends from 2 to 5 on AM 900 CHML. We were on a track to having to spend 30 to $40 million uh, in the coming years. Uh, fighting and settling uh, a case that we were destined to lose. And that case, of course, was the case of Omar Khadr. 30 to $40 million, said the uh, Prime Minister. So clearly he saved us a lot of money with a $10.5 million payout to Mr. Khadr. And so this country should stop whining at Justin Trudeau and thank him for his stewardship of our dollars. And settling with Cotter, well, we know the blame was all Stephen Harper's. Oh, wait a minute. Wait a minute. When Cotter was questioned, the liberals were in power. So it couldn't have been Stephen Harper. I'm getting confused now. Senator Denise Batters is back with us on the Roy Green Show on the Chorus Radio Network, conservative senator from Saskatchewan. And you have told me, you listeners and callers have told me repeatedly and insistently this issue of the payout to Cotter, the $10.5 million, is something that you will not forget two years from now when the federal vote takes place again, that you will hold the prime minister accountable. And you just heard him say he saved us a tremendous amount of money. Well, in the Senate chambers earlier this week, there was question period, and Senator Batters took the opportunity to challenge the liberals on the deal they made with Omar Cotter. Senator, good to have you back with us, uh, and, and, and we wanted to make sure that we separated the two issues, the tax fairness and the Cotter, so the best thing we could do was ask you to come on twice. Why last, why last week? There's lots to criticize this week about the Trudeau government. Yeah, there's lots to talk about. Mm-hmm. What was it that caused you to decide that this was the appropriate time to hold the Liberals' feet to the fire, and you did, on the payout to Omar Khadr. And if I remember correctly, we're going to play the clip in a minute, you said something about, we want to know about the secret payout, or the secrets Absolutely. behind we, it. Yeah. So, so what, what, made it, what made it appropriate this week? Because clearly the Liberals weren't ready for you. <laughs> True. I don't know how they couldn't have been, but uh, we've waited months for these answers, and this was the first week that Parliament returned, so it was really the first chance to ask about this. Um, the Trudeau government deliberately had this uh, information um, 
that did not come out before Parliament rose in late June, and then it, this information came out on July 3rd. Um, so this is the first opportunity that we had to ask about it, and I wanted to take it because it was such a massive issue on my social media and, of course, across the country. Canadians were just outraged by this universally, pretty much, from everyone I heard. And uh, so I wanted to take the chance to ask those very tough questions. So why don't we have a listen to the exchange between you and the Liberal Senator. What was his name? Um, it's the Senate government leader, Peter Harder. Peter Harder. So you appointed asked the Justin question. Trudeau. I'm sorry? Uh, I'm sorry, appointed by Justin Trudeau. Appointed by Justin Trudeau, isn't everybody? Uh, let's have a listen to your exchange with Senator Harder about Omar Carter and the $10.5 million uh, payout. Honorable Senators, my question is to the leader of the government in the Senate, Senator Harder, the Trudeau government made a secret deal with confessed terrorist Omar Cotter, reportedly worth $10.5 million. We don't know the actual amount because your government decided to keep the agreement secret. What is the Trudeau government trying to hide? Is it the amount of money you're actually paying to Cotter? Perhaps his sizable legal bills are in addition to the $10.5 million tax-free sum. Certainly, you're trying to hide the precise timing of the deal. Given the information came out July 3rd, it's a certainty that the Trudeau government made the deal with Cotter before July 1. I guess they didn't want the PM and his Liberal MPs booed off stages across the country on Canada Day. It's also highly probable that this secret Cotter deal was struck before Parliament rose in late June. You don't just arrive at a $10.5 million deal and pay out all the money overnight. What was the date the secret Trudeau-Cotter deal was reached? Did your government make the deal before Parliament rose and hide it to avoid a barrage of scrutiny from the Conservative opposition in question period and from the national media? And Senator Harder, does this agreement contain details about how this massive payment to a confessed terrorist will be paid? Specifically, does the secret Trudeau-Cotter deal refer to Tabitha Spears' judgment? Did the Trudeau government actually assist Omar Cotter in structuring the deal and $10.5 million payment in such a way so Cotter could evade that widow's legitimate claim to every single cent he received? Canadians have waited months for these answers. Senator Harder. Thank the Honourable Senator for a question. Uh, let me um, uh, remind this House that, uh, yes, the government... Uh, did announce a settlement that was reached uh, in bringing Mr. Carter, Cotter's civil case to a close. Uh, this settlement, to be clear, is about one thing only, the acts or omissions of the Government of Canada after Mr. Cotter was detained. That was the issue. The Supreme Court already found that Mr. Carter's rights were violated and protected legal proceedings and protracted legal proceedings have cost millions uh, of dollars and could cost more were they to continue, uh, with virtually no chance of success given the Supreme Court's findings. The fact is that when the Government of Canada violates any Canadian charters, charter rights, we all end up paying for it. That is the case here, and as with any negotiated settlement, details are confidential. Senator Harder, it is not by necessity that the Cotter deal was confidential. Many agreements are disclosed when they, after they are reached. The Trudeau government here made a deliberate choice to keep it secret. $10.5 million buys a little leverage with the payee. 
the government could have and should have insisted that openness and transparency about this massive payout was necessary information for Canadian taxpayers. So, Senator Harder, I'll ask you again, what is the Trudeau government trying to hide in this secret deal? Is it the actual amount of the multi-million dollar payout, the precise timing of the deal, how the deal was structured to evade Tabitha Spears' judgment, or D, all of the above? Senator Harder, let me repeat that that let me repeat that what we are dealing with is a situation where the government of Canada has violated the charter rights uh, uh, excuse me the government of Canada at the time was not a liberal government uh, it, uh, it, and the, the, government, the succeeding governments that have been involved and the precedents, the precedents in this case have been followed with respect to uh, the negotiations, the nature of the, of, the, of the agreement and the fact that that agreement remains uh, as appropriate uh, confidential. It's difficult to repeat uh, somebody else's disingenuous statement, isn't it? Uh, have a listen again to Trudeau. We were on a track to having to spend 30 to 40 million dollars uh, in the coming years uh, fighting and settling uh, a case that we were destined to lose. 30 to 40 million dollars. He knew that, so we paid out 10.5 million dollars, and the details of the payout are secret. They're confidential. You and I, in other words, who paid for it, have no right to know what the details are. You're listening to The Roy Green Show, weekends from 2 to 5 on AM 900 CHML. Senator Peter Harder, I, I, I would think, Senator, if, if you're listening, and you may very well be, Senator, you must have been embarrassed by your answer to Senator Batters. You must have been embarrassed by your answer to the, to the Senator, to her question about the secret deal with Omar Carter, because you know the truth, she knows the truth, I know the truth. Canadians know the truth. I've been in six federal prisons, you know, a day at a time. So there's an advisory committee uh, for the Federal Minister of Public Safety. And uh, when I was in, in one prison, uh, we were talking to a, a, a number of inmates, and they said, there's your story, there's my story, and there's the truth. So we've heard the liberal story we know the truth. Senator Batters, when you, uh, when you asked that question and you heard the answer come back from Senator Harder, what were you thinking? Because what you asked for a very legitimate question. Was Carter given the $10.5 million on a, let's get this done fast so Omar can cash the money before Tabitha Spear, Spears gets her hands on it? That was a legitimate question to ask and they ducked that one as well. What were you thinking when, when, when he started with his answer? Well, unfortunately, this has been become actually quite um, frequent from this particular Trudeau um, Senate government leader. This was one of the lengthier questions, uh, responses to one of my questions that I've received from him, and uh, these kinds of um, methods of ducking are commonplace. 
which is really unfortunate because these are questions that Canadians want asked and answered. And uh, on in his answer, actually, he gave um, two statements that were just absolutely not correct. First of all, and most importantly, he said that the government of Canada at the time was not a liberal government. That it is was. not true. It was two liberal governments in place, the Chrétien government and the Martin government, um, during the interrogations that Omar Khadr went through at Guantanamo Bay. In fact, it was actually the Harper government that later came in that repatriated Cotter. And our Conservative leader, Andrew Scheer, says that was actually the remedy that Cotter was entitled to by virtue of the Supreme Court of Canada's judgment, not a huge multi-million dollar settlement payment. The other thing that he said that it was not true was he said, as with any negotiated settlement, the details are confidential. Well, that is absolutely not true as well. Um, it's not by necessity that a deal is confidential. There are many times when lawyers come to agreements, other parties come to agreements, and they decide to disclose the details after they're reached. And here, in the interest of openness and transparency on this critical of an issue for Canadian taxpayers, the Canadian taxpayers deserve to know that information. And what I said in my question was, I think $10.5 million buys you a little leverage when you're paying yeah, that much. It certainly should. Yeah, now, what do, you, what, do you, what do you suspect the truth is? If, if Senator Harder says that what Prime Minister Trudeau suggested is the truth, that it would cost 30 to $40 million over a 10-year period, uh, or 10 or 20 years, this thing wouldn't have dragged on for 20 years. There's no way uh, that it would have dragged on for 20 years, but they wanted to end it quickly. What do you, what do you suspect the truth behind this payout is? Well, I'm just very leery about all of the things that I asked. You know, the fact that it was a leaked information that we we don't even know the actual amount. It, there could be an additional amounts that they're paying to Omar Cotter as part of that deal, like legal fees, other types of amounts. Um, so we don't even know the actual amount. We only know that because of that confidential information that was leaked. Um, I very much suspect, like, as I said, that it was definitely arrived at before Canada Day, but they hid it for a few more days because they didn't want to be booed off stages across the country. I mean, I'm from Regina. Ralph Goodale, that um, on Canada Day, flipped a coin for the opening of our new stadium um, for the Rough Fighters game. He would have been booed out of that stadium had he already announced, and he was actually the one with his name on that apology to Omar Cotter. So Justin Trudeau would have been booed off the stage on Parliament Hill. It's it's completely certain that that deal would have been made um, prior to Canada Day, which would have been the Saturday, um, and the deal was leaked on the Monday. Okay. Um, I also think it's potentially, it's quite probable that it was struck before Parliament rose in late June and, uh, and potentially hid to avoid the kind of scrutiny that the opposition and the media would bring to it. So here, here's the question. Then, here's the question. Yeah. There is a leaker, so unless they leaked it themselves... Um, but there is a, let's assume there's a leaker who has that information. I would assume then that leaker would have more information. Is there any way to find out what that additional information might be? Does anyone have, I'm not going to ask you to identify anyone if you know, but is there any idea within the Conservative Party of who may be doing the leaking or where the leaking may be coming from? Um, and, and back to question A, is there, is it, is it possible to sort of plumb that leak for more information? 
Well, it wasn't a leak that we received. It was the Globe and Mail, actually. No, I, I know. It. But, I know. yeah, if that person is out there, I mean, these are important details that Canadians need to know, particularly about that Tabitha Spear judgment. Yeah. Because to think that um, the government of Canada could potentially be involved in helping to structure a deal and that kind of a massive payout in such a way as to evade that legitimate claim that she had to every single cent that he got, that was almost that was almost worse. There were many people on my social media when the deal um, amount was first leaked, they said, well, at least then she'll get the money. She can get every single cent of it. And then a couple of days later, when it was announced that, no, he's already got the full amount completely paid, people were just apoplectic about that. The timing is just too coincidental. Mm -hmm, Absolutely. The timing is too perfect to be coincidental, is what I was going to say. But there, there, there has to be more information waiting to be dispersed. There has to be more information. The leaker has to know more. I know that they're saying, you know, we're going to try to identify you and we'll punish you for leaking. Well, what have you got to lose uh, at this point? Because eventually they're going to find you. So tell Canadians what the story is and and you'll become a national hero. Absolutely. I thought it was very interesting and uh, terrible at the same point that um, during his press conference, Ralph Goodale was actually angrier at the person who had leaked this information than he was at the fact that he was paying and apologizing to a confessed terrorist. Well, you know that this is a government that has also decided, because of the Prime Minister's personal um, decision on this, that if you're a dual citizen and you're convicted of a terrorist act or convicted of being prepared to commit a terrorist act against Canadians that would cost Canadian lives, you wouldn't lose your Canadian citizenship because he says a Canadian is a Canadian is a Canadian. So I want to know where Mr. Trudeau's priorities lie, and I certainly want to know what the details are behind this $10.5 million because as Canadians who pay the bill, we have the right to know. Absolutely. And congratulations to you for pursuing this, and I suspect it's not the last time you're going to do it. I don't think it will be. Yes. All right, and Senator. Canadians want to know. Thank exactly. you very much. Thanks for the time. Senator Denise Batters with us. The Roy Green Show, weekends from 2 to 5 on AM 900 CHML.